Welcome back for episode 47 in our study of the book of Revelation. This episode is called The Seal of the Bridal Chamber. I'm Sam Bracken, your host. Our teacher is Dr. Breck England. This week, the whole church is studying the book of Revelation in Sunday school. We hope you'll pick up a copy of Breck's book, The Bright and Morning Star, Finding and Following Jesus Through the Book of Revelation. It will really help you understand what's going on. Most people have a hard time with Revelation because it's heavily symbolic. But Latter-day Saints have a special key to understanding Revelation, and it's the temple. For example, reading the first three chapters of Revelation, if you've been to the temple, you'll feel like you've heard it all before. It'll sound familiar to you. If you haven't been to the temple, it's just a confusing bunch of details But if you connect Revelation to temple ordinances, things start to clear up beautifully. And that's why I wrote The Bright and Morning Star, to help you make those connections. You can find the book easily on Amazon.com. Just type in the author's name, Breck England, or the title, The Bright and Morning Star, and put in your order. I put in my order. I bought several. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It's available in paperback or Kindle. And if you like the book, please leave a review on Amazon. And if you don't, um, forget it. Yeah, forget (laughs) forget it. But for now, let's get back to episode number 47, The Seal of the Bridal Chamber. This sounds extremely interesting. I can't wait. Well, in this episode, we continue to look at the marriage of the Lamb, or the sealing ceremony that takes place in the New Jerusalem at the end of the book of Revelation. In ancient times, Israel celebrated, this is a quote from a um, French um, scholar named André Villeneuve. He says, in ancient times, Israel celebrated sacred union or heavenly matrimony in the context of Shavuot, uh, Pentecost, the festival of the covenant between God and Israel. You'll remember that... um, the families of Israel were supposed to, to make a pilgrimage to the temple three times a year, one in the spring, one in the summer, one in the fall. And the summer festival was called Shavuot, or we call it Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. That was also traditionally the time when marriages took place. And according to, the, to, to this uh, New Testament scholar, um, Villeneuve, he says, quote, the Holy of Holies was the place of Hieros gamos. Now that's a, a Greek expression that means holy marriage. Hieros gamos, a mystical union between God and Israel that was particularly celebrated on the Feast of Shavuot. What began with the uh, betrothal ceremony, you remember that, the betrothal ceremony called the Erison in Hebrew, is now uh, fulfilled in the Holy of Holies that intervening period of testing between uh, betrothal and, um, and marriage, which is, which, uh, is the, uh, the, the, the period of testing by tribulation, that is past. And now we've come to the moment of Nisuin, which is the actual wedding. Uh, this is the fulfillment of promises that were made at Mount Sinai by God, where Israel was likened to a bride and was betrothed to God who was likened to a bridegroom. Now, another scholar named Henry Glazer says, quote, Shavuot is viewed 
as the most intimate and dramatic moment of marriage between God and Israel, corresponding to the union of the masculine and the feminine, unquote. Um, oh, I'm sorry, the quote goes on, excuse me. Ritually, the groom steps out and escorts or accompanies the bride into the chuppah, where he delivers a ketubah to her. You remember what the ketubah is? Marriage contract? Right. Mm -hmm. He delivers a ketubah to her just as God reached out to Israel to bring her to the chuppah, which was Mount Sinai, where he issued her a ketubah, that is the Torah, the, the law of Moses. Close quote. Yeah, what is a chuppah? The word chuppah literally means covering, and it's related to the word we translate as atonement. Mm, very interesting. This becomes very interesting. Uh, you remember Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, and the word Kippur and the word chuppah mean the same thing, a covering. Wow. Yom Kippur was the day when is the day when all our sins are covered. Okay, so that's what it means. It's a day of covering. All our sins are covered or paid for and erased. Uh, they, they become invisible. You can't see them because they're covered. So, so we are redeemed under the chuppah. Now, in the Middle East, to be covered by someone's robe, for example, you remember that Ruth was covered by Boaz's robe, which meant that he claimed her as a, right. as a member of the family. To be covered by someone's robe meant to be at one with that person, mm. meant you belong to them, and you're part of it. Wow. Part of that person, part of that person's family. So the chuppah is a symbol of being at one mm. with someone. In ancient times, the chuppah was uh, probably a closed-in wedding chamber. But today, observant Jews get married under a canopy, uh, which is kind of a later development of the wedding chamber. Traditionally, the moment of the wedding, they drape a prayer shawl over the bride and groom, to represent their oneness and God's union with Israel. At the same time, they represent those two things when they put the shawl over the bride and groom. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, quote, I spread my skirt over thee, I swear unto thee, I enter into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. So the ancient wedding ceremony was a covenant where the bride and groom became one. Yes. You see, this is all atonement imagery. As the bride and groom are encircled in the protective robe of the righteousness of the Lord. That's in 2 Nephi 1.15. The chuppah, or canopy, is a symbol of the Holy of Holies and the temple as a whole, and ultimately of the New Jerusalem. Okay? The ceiling is the culminating point of the whole book of Revelation. It's the wedding of the Lamb. And that's one of John's symbols, right? It's actually one of John's astronomical symbols. Mm -hmm. You remember the constellation Aries, which is the cosmic Lamb, right? Mm -hmm. Has returned to its original position. It's made its full circle. It's come back around to its original position of the year. The sky location, according to Dr. Molinitz, the sky location it occupied as it issued from the hands of God the Creator. The Lamb, or Aries, is also Alpha and Omega, 
the beginning and the end. So at the beginning of the year and the end of the year, you see. So when you get to Aries, you know you've come full circle, okay? And um, this notion of the Lamb being Alpha and Omega is uh, found twice in the book of Revelation, once in the, the beginning and once in chapter 21, verse 6. Quote, His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. So this is what is meant by the eternal round, okay? Mm. And that's in Psalms 19 and 6. Now, this is very cool. In the sky, at that apex moment, the sun uh, in the sky, S-U-N, the sun, moves into the constellation Theongamos. That's what astronomers call it, Theongamos, which literally means the wedding of God. Oh, wow. Professor Molina says, quote, the sky and earth would be renewed and the wedding of the Lamb would take place when the sun enters the constellation Theon Gamos. Wow. Did ancient people get married inside the temple? Well, there's a lot we don't know about what went on in the ancient temple. Uh, some very early Christian writings some of them Gnostic, talk a lot about the temple and marriage. The Gospel of Philip says, quote, the Holy of Holies is the bridal chamber. We might call it a ceiling room. Uh, Philip says that Jesus brings with him those of the order of the priesthood who are to be united with a spiritual spouse from the marriage of purity in the mirrored bridal chamber where the two are made one male and female, one and the same, unquote. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, they had a wedding chamber with mirrors? We don't know if the mirrored bridal chamber that Philip spoke of was real or symbolic. Okay, okay. that's cool. <clears throat> but Gnostic scripture calls the ceremony of the bridal chamber a seal, a sealing. It was one of five seals, including washing, anointing, robing, and enthroning, which he says, the Gospel of Philip says, are the ordinances of the Father, the endowment of glory is higher than any glory, unquote. Philip goes on to say, quote, the Lord did everything in a mystery, a baptism, a chrism, a Eucharist, and a redemption, and a bridal chamber. So those are all stages in the endowment, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And the sealing. Mm -hmm. Unquote. A mystery, you remember that a mystery um, was uh, a, a ceremony, a ritual. It's not a Sherlock Holmes thing to them. It was, uh, yeah. the word itself meant a ceremony. Mm. Okay. Very cool. Now, the, the scholar Margaret Barker says this, quote, The bridal chamber seems to be the culminating ritual in a series of rituals required for individuals to return to the Gnostic heaven, which was called the Pleroma. This ritual, which recreates the balance and harmony of the Pleroma, or the celestial world, must be performed on earth. It's interesting that she would say this. It is associated with the Holy of Holies in the temple, unquote. Now, I think, this is my theory, that the Gnostic ceremony that's described here was possibly a survival of higher ordinances administered by the first apostles, but only within a trusted circle. 
okay? The secret priestly tradition of temple ritual says Barker, quote, passed down unwritten and was known in the early church, unquote. So what she's saying is that these ordinances were known, but only among a certain very confidential circle of early Christians. And then they disappeared. Okay. Let's get back to the, uh, the covenant. The, the ketubah is now a legal guarantee. Once you've been sealed, the ketubah becomes a guarantee. Okay. Uh, one scholar says this, quote, Thus an eternal covenant binding them forever has been established between them. And the bridegroom and the bride have given their oaths to carry it out, unquote. So now the bride and bridegroom are about to create their own new world together. There's another uh, apocryphal book called The Book of Joseph and Asenath. The Early Christians thought of as an allegory of the union of Christ and the soul. Okay, the bride and the groom. Um, this is from the Book of Joseph and Asenath. The bride and groom embraced each other for a long time and interlocked their hands like bonds to symbolize an indissoluble eternal union. Isn't that cool? That is very okay. cool. The interlocking of the hands was a key part of the ceremony. The book says that at that point, Asenath uh, is the bride of Joseph. Okay. Mm-hmm. You remember the story of Joseph in Egypt? Mm-hmm. He goes to, to Egypt. He's a slave. Blah, mm-hmm. blah. He gets saved. Uh, he becomes uh, ruler of the kingdom mm-hmm. under Pharaoh. And um, as ruler of the kingdom, he gets to marry a princess. Mm-hmm. And the princess was uh, an Egyptian woman named Asenath. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, she was a pagan. Okay. Mm-hmm. She was an Egyptian. But she, she came to the Lord and she became Joseph's eternal companion. Okay. Asenath. Yeah, we've talked about her in previous episodes. We have, yeah. Um, it says at the point where he takes her by the hand, quote, Asenath's face was like the sun and her eyes like the rising morning star. Uh, recalling the Shekinah, the bride of God. Okay. Beautiful. It's beautiful imagery. Now, the Ketubah promises that, quote, this is, quote, as the temple's light illuminates eternally, so too will the everlasting bond of a husband and wife through love and kindness, unquote. Isn't that a beautiful that expression? beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. I hope we can see this, because this is extremely important. Okay, this is, where, this is what we've all been leading up to. The highest purpose of the atonement of Christ is fulfilled in the bridal chamber. Remember that atonement means at one minute, mm-hmm. right? Here, husbands and wives unite for eternity as one flesh to love and care for each other as if they were one body and a single personality. And that's in Matthew 19 and 6, unquote. Now, this is the Gospel of Philip. It says, quote, If the woman had not separated from the man in Eden, she should not die with the man. Right? So this separation became the beginning of death, right? Right. Christ came to reunite the two, and those, according to the Gospel of Philip, who have joined in the bridal chamber will never be separated. That's beautiful. There's an LDS scholar named Terrell Givens, and um, I think he puts this Beautifully, he says, the earth was created for this very purpose. Marriage was ordained and families established 
that the earth might answer the end of its creation, unquote. So the Lord's purpose from the first has been to save and exalt us as kings and queens, priests and priestesses, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, united as one in the bridal chamber. Paul, in um, Ephesians 5, 31, he says, this is the great mystery, meaning the great ceremony, the great ritual. Right. This is the great mystery. In Greek, he says, homisterion mega. We know what mega means. This is the great mystery, the great uh, ceremony, which translates as, probably best translated as, an exalted ordinance. Okay, as Paul calls it, the chief mystery of godliness. It's a beautiful passage, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Wow. Now, in the book of Revelation, who exactly is getting married here? We've talked a lot about symbolic marriage between Christ and the church, but that's not a real, literal marriage. I mean, Christ is not my husband, and he's not my wife's husband. Well, yeah, but symbolically, the Savior is the groom for the church, right? Mm-hmm. Who exactly is the bride? Is she figurative or literal? Well, we probably do best to understand how she functions in the book of Revelation. Joseph Smith cleared things up in his inspired translation of chapter 12, verse 7. Uh, he says, The bride is the church of God. And when dedicating the Kirtland Temple, he prayed that, quote, Thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness and be adorned as a bride for that day when thou shalt unveil the heavens, unquote. That's DNC 109.73. One scholar uh, named Kevin Miller, he sums this up, sums up really well what the symbol of the bride is. Quote, a collective entity including all those who exhibit the righteousness of fidelity to God, unquote. Now, Isaiah says in 49.18, Isaiah says, quote, All Israel will gather themselves together and come to thee. Thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all as an ornament and bind them on thee as a bride doeth. So Isaiah talks about right the saints as the bride of Christ kind of collectively. We, we also know that the church is the woman in chapter 12 of Revelation. Remember, she escapes from the dragon into the wilderness, and she gets chased by the dragon, and, and she's safe there until the wedding takes place. Now, up, up in the sky, in astral terms, the bride is the constellation Virgo, the woman gleaming with the glory of the sun with the moon under her feet. That's chapter 12, verse 1. Interesting. At the Shavuot festival, quote, the sun is enthroned in his midsummer splendor, equally balanced above Aries and Virgo. So what I want you to see in your mind's eye is on one side is the constellation Aries, right? Next to Aries is Virgo. And above them both is the sun, the S-U-N, the sun in the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, symbolizing that the lamb and his bride are evenly yoked under the father. Okay, Adam and Eve, 
right? They're equal partners. They stand to the right and the left, like the bride and groom in every wedding ceremony. There was a very great New Testament scholar named Austin Farrer, and he makes this connection between Virgo and the New Jerusalem. Quote, as the bride, or holy of holies, descends from heaven, she expands to embrace the whole zodiac and to wear it as a crown about her brows, a temple which is extended over the whole area, unquote. This is really, you know, interesting visual symbolism. This is the, the Virgo is one of the largest constellations in the sky, and she expands to cover the whole sky in this uh, period during the year. Quote, the special Shekinah presence of Jehovah, formerly limited to the Holy of Holies within the nation of Israel, has burst forth to encompass not only Israel, but the entire new earth. The inner sanctuary, that is the Holy of Holies, which was cut off from the outside world, will envelop the entire creation. Okay, so the whole world will become the Holy of Holies. And in this holy marriage, the woman becomes the queen of heaven. So we're not talking about an actual wedding of two people, but a unity between Christ and the church. It seems so. These symbols are polyvalent. Do you remember what polyvalent meant? Yeah. means one thing can mean different things. Yes. Okay. What's true about the at-one-ment between Christ and the church is also true of the at-one-ment of couples who are, quote, sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, unquote. The temple marriage mirrors the marriage relationship of the lamb and the bride, or it should, right? Mm -hmm. Quote uh, from Doctrine and Covenants 132, 19. They receive their exaltation and glory in all things, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever, unquote. Those who are faithful to their covenant will reign over their own dominions, which can be enlarged to eternity, okay? Mm -hmm. Revelation describes our Father's plan as a means of qualifying his children for power and great glory, and glory means an expansion of the seeds, the family, mm -hmm. okay? Which can be entrusted only to those who have been proved, right, to be worthy of that trust. Paul says in 821, the glorious liberty of the children of God means absolute freedom of action. But that freedom can be given only to those who are sure to use it as he would use it, right? Only to those he could trust. So the Lord promises the married couple that they will reign over their own dominions. What does that mean? Most Christian commentaries pass very quickly over that promise that we shall reign forever because they don't know what will reign over, okay? Uh, the answer, of course, is that we will lead our own beloved families. Doctrine and Covenants 121, 46, our royal scepter, right, will be, quote, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth and our dominion, an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means, it shall flow unto us forever and ever. 
Now, what I see in my mind's eye through all that grand language is I see my grandchildren mm-hmm. running to me, mm-hmm. throwing their arms around me. I'm not, it's not compulsory. They don't have to do this. Right, right. Why do they do it? Because they love me and I love them. Right. Okay. They shout, they scream, they poppy, poppy, and they come running to me. And to me, that is what is meant by an everlasting dominion that flows to me without compulsory means, okay? Um, but only if, if I qualify for the trust of those children and for the trust of my father, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole book of Revelation centers on Christ as bridegroom with all that that role entails, He is the ideal husband, right? Mm -hmm. The model that every husband should imitate. Everything he does is for love of the bride. He makes a ketubah covenant with her to cherish, redeem, and sustain her. This, by the way, that's language that's in the Jewish ketubah, okay? Cherish, redeem, and sustain her. He walks by her side through the great tribulation of the Erisin, which is the betrothal period, and the end, he celebrates the Nisuin, which is the sealing, with her. Quote, the Savior is not only the bridegroom, but the honored patron of the ceremony and the server at the banquet. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. He is the great servant, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's according to uh, uh, Brother Wilcox, who's uh, written a beautiful book on Revelation. So as a measure of his unlimited devotion... Christ is the great servant, and he is the one who gives his whole life for the bride. And that's what a husband should do. He gives his life, all his effort, all his energy, all his devotion, right? When, when, when you go to work, you're not working for money, for glory, for power, for image. You're working for her. You're working for the family. It's consecrated labor. Recall how often the Lord refers to himself as the bridegroom. It's one of his favorite names for himself. And it's maybe the role he treasures the most. We can't comprehend the depth of devotion to the bride that he will express and does express. This is a quote from um, Hugh Nibley. It's a beautiful quote. He says, the symbols we have here in Revelation are indeed meager compared with the perfect glory. The things we do in symbols, right, in the temple, merely hint at things as they are, where there is glory above glory and power upon power. Unquote. And, uh, and as the Gospel of Philip says, quote, the holy of holies and the bridal chamber are the same. These are the ultimate Okay, you know how I feel about my own family, my own temple marriage. Um, Sam, what, what do you, how do you feel about this covenant, about your own temple marriage? Well, this morning, um, I've been overwhelmed with, with what I've learned from you to this morning. I, um, it seems to answer a lot of questions for me. My most precious possession that I have is my beloved family. I wish I would have realized that earlier in my life. I think it changes my behavior. I think it elevates my spirit and makes 
all the difference. And I guess you get that with age as you as you try to you struggle to raise your own children and you see their struggles and you do your best to, to guide them. They have to figure out their own journey. Then you have grandchildren who love you unconditionally as you love them. And the layers, the layers of love um, and the layers of truth just keep getting stronger and keep getting better. I'm just completely um, moved this morning regarding how clear the message is and how much it's repeated in layers. You gaze up into heaven. You see it in the stars. You read it in the words. It's in, it's, it's, it's in the traditions. The mysteries are not mysteries the way we understand them. The mysteries are, what do you say, ordinances? Or the, the mysteries are sacred ordinances that are have the same purpose as the imagery in the sky. And and then then you compare it all to the temple. And as you as you go through those um, sacred ordinances, it's all the same. And it's been the same for thousands of years. And it has one purpose, one purpose singular purpose and that is to seal our families to us for our own glory and blessing and benefit throughout eternity but that comes at a price and most people don't understand that price but when you understand it when you start to understand it the price is not a price at all it's a gift um, it, it's it's just beautiful. It's it's a great gift. It's an endowment, um, which means, of course, a gift, right? Right. Yeah. Thanks for that expression. Um, I feel the same. Uh, the greatest, probably the greatest dream of my whole life, was to find a queen and a priestess who would share eternal life with me and be at one with me. And out of that would come children and grandchildren and generations of faithful saints, right, who would love the Lord Jesus Christ and who would um, constitute a kingdom that would flow to me without compulsory means, right? That would be our dominion. I struggled hard to find that queen, okay? And we found each other. Or rather, the Lord brought us together. And um, our five kids, our 21 grandchildren, all those blessings uh, have come to us because of the temple ceiling. And that takes us to our next episode which is called, Then Shall They Be Gods. That's exciting.